My name is Saida, sister, friend, and today is March 6, 1992, and I am interviewing Bob Buechler for the uh, project at the Missouri Historical Society concerning World War II. Bob enlisted in the Army Air Corps in February 25, 1942. He flew with the 14th Air Force and the 10th Air Force uh, in the China, Burma, and India Theater of War uh, called the CBI. He was discharged July 4, 1945. Bob says that the correct term is uh, for officers is that re you relieved relieved of duty. Relieved Unless you're a regular, what you make your whole life that occupation. Supposing you graduate from the academy, mm -hmm. any one of the three academies, then you are, there's three categories, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, if you're a regular, and with that term has been involved in our military ever since the days of Continental Army was formed, George Bush. What that meant was uh, if you were regular, you, the profession of arms is something you do continuously. But we were called, this war, as I, I pointed out the other day, it started out with uh, nothing. We were, had minimal equipment and everything. Hell, even down in Louisiana when uh, McNear had the uh, uh, war game, they were using mock guns because we didn't have guns, rifles for the infantry in 1941. There had to be a gigantic effort to industrialize the country and mobilize it and bring all these things into being. Uh, this has always been an idiot nation when it comes to war. Why? Well, because, because of our people, I guess because we're a loose society and they're not disciplined. It's a dem we call it democracy, although that's misnomer. Uh, it's really a republic, but it's a loose republic. And nowhere else in the world do citizens have as much freedom as they have here. If you look at your, your constitution, you have your the federal government, and you know your dual status, you have two citizenships. You're a federal citizen, and you're a citizen of the state in which you reside. Uh, and you have two different sets of laws that apply to you. Well, but for all of them have constitutions. Most of them are patterned one after the other with some, some differences. And if you look at all the rights, benefits, and emoluments that you've got as a citizen of the United States or of the state of Missouri, uh, no place else in the world have you got that. Most people don't even know what the, what the hell a right is. Couldn't define it, you know. So, uh, tell me, as far as the Second World War, what did this country do when we were attacked? They exercised the Constitution. The government used the Constitution. I mean, the people. How would you say they reacted as a loose society? Oh, they came together. What? There's a psychological reason for that. Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. 
it galvanized the population of the United States into one. Prior to that, they were divisive. They, they couldn't get together. There was no coherence at all in our society. It, are, you, are you saying that that's not good? Well, it has detriments and it has its benefits. Uh, we've always been a social experiment. We still are. Uh, and I think we're paying a piper. Now we're becoming a second-class nation. Well, we'll get on to that. Let's go back and look at okay. you. And, um, you guide me. Where do you want to go? <laughs> I, wanna, I want you to tell me what you were doing before <laughs> uh, 1941. You were born January 20th, 1921, so you were 20 years old yeah. in 1941. And what, were you, what was your education in those days? I was just a high school graduate you, and Beaumont. from Beaumont High School. Mm -hmm. I barely got through there. I got kicked out twice. You did. I hit a teacher once. And, you know how young people are. Uh, all right. And what did you do? Uh, well, I was a truck driver, and uh, as we approached the war years, I became a quasi-machinist. And uh, I had worked in, uh, on engines, things of that nature. I always had a propensity for that sort of thing. And I was doing that when uh, the war broke, December the 7th. I was a, a drill press operator and a lathe operator where you machine parts for building the airplanes. But we were building them. It was, the crescendo was starting, you know, mm -hmm. moving up. And you were at Curtis Wright, you told at me? At Curtis Wright, which is presently the headquarters of McDonnell Douglas. Mm -hmm. So you, did people talk over there at that time, I mean, about the, a war? Well, yeah. The war clouds were gathering, and everybody knew we were going to get involved sooner or later with the Axis. You know, it takes a great deal of study to understand how Stalin and Hitler and Hirohito came together to form the Axis powers. It was one hellacious war. Uh, there were over 40 million people killed in that war. God, if you look at your, all your battles of history, of course, that's always been a, a hobby of mine. I, I love battles, you know. I love warfare, not, not for the sake of warfare itself, but wars is what shapes history. Uh, I had one of the greatest history teachers in the world, Dr. Usher, out at Austin University. Roland Usher. Roland Usher. Do you remember him? Yeah. Well, I used to love listening to his lectures. He was uh, quite scholarly on all the aspects of weapons at that time from the uh, the crossbow and the longbow and the pike and cavalry, use of cavalry and cannon up until the nuclear age. Because, again, we had one of the greatest nuclear scientists out there who was a good friend of mine. I played music with him, Dr. Rush, I mean, Dr. Arthur Holly Compton. Uh, Compton was, oh, he came to my house many a time. And I met some great people out of his home. One time, uh, Mrs. Uh, Compton, 
she wanted me to bring it to the tour house. She said, we've got an honored guest. And I asked her, I said, who the hell is it? She said, Bob, you don't need to know that. You know, I'll, you'll be surprised when you see it. Well, I went out to the Chancellor's House at Washington University and rang the doorbell, had my guitar with me. And uh, Arthur played uh, banjo mandolin. That was Hollywood. The door opened, and guess who it was? Einstein. That's the greatest mind of the whole damn century, you know. And uh, to me, well, I met people like that. Of course, I first met Dr. Teller out there. Then I met Teller many times, and, and I know him on a first name basis now. He's still very active in scientific affairs uh, with our government. How did you and Dr. Compton get together? Well, I was a student out there. And uh, let's see, Mrs. Compton, oh, I know, we had a little band. And they had a tea, Mrs. Compton had a tea, and she wanted an ensemble, and I went over there. And she liked me, I don't know why. My background was anything like theirs, you know, I keep the other side of the tracks. But uh, we So your, your little trio hired out and they hired you and that's how? Well, it wasn't a hiring situation, it was a gratuity. Oh. But that, be that as may, it wasn't, that was all right. And then she, one thing led to another, she said, well, my husband plays banjo man win. She said, I want you two to get together. Well, I don't. Uh, the hierarchy in a university is very similar to the one in the military. Compton was the, the, uh, the head guy and uh, the chancellor, mm -hmm. what they called it at that university. And a student would never accept, maybe hear him speak in a, in a speech or something, but he didn't have that uh, association with him on a personal basis. Mm -hmm. I did have that because of a fluke. Everything had come to the bottom of the fluke. Um, so you knew them, and uh, when did you decide to, um, to where were you when, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor? Oh, I was lifting weights with a friend of mine. Uh, in fact, he's only deceased, about two years. Benny Sanatepo was his name, an Italian family up in North St. Louis. And it was Sunday afternoon, and finally his mother came running out of the house. She says, we're at war. And we've been, we've been bombed, that's what she said. Uh, and I don't know, there was a feeling, we knew the world was at war, you know. And everybody knew that sooner or later this country was going to be lost. Didn't know that we were going to make our entrance to the war the way we did with a sneak attack by the open arm bastards over there, but that's the way it happened. And uh, I don't know, being young and... How'd you feel when you heard it, when she says we're at war? I mean, what, what was your... My reaction was, it was great. Maybe you think I'm nutty, uh, a couple of bubbles off and two cars full, I don't know. But uh, when you're young, and you're not age, you have different feelings. It was an adventure. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, oh, I had always wanted to be a pilot, but people from my economic strata were not pilots. That was a closed uh, club up until the war. But then they couldn't, the elite could no, no longer maintain their status with their clubs and everything. Because events overtook them. Any society builds walls around certain people. We do today. Uh, and so uh, I was happy because I knew I was smart enough. Hell, I was smarter than people in my high school. Although I think I graduated out of my class, second bottom for the bottom. Uh, we had more dopes in that, that class. And the teachers I thought were stupid. I really did. They were attuned to the wrong thing. You know. Uh, and I'd gotten what I needed, you know, English composition, literature, enough knowledge of the world and what was uh, I had pretty good uh, knowledge of geography, so I know what was going on. But anybody was naive, they would be a, a, a great degree of naivete to believe that we weren't going to be involved on a massive scale. And you have to remember, our population right now is around 250 million people. At that time, it was about 150 million people. And we. Uh, we fostered an army, a military, that's including Navy, Army, and Air Corps, of 16 million people in a matter of about two years. So you didn't really wait long to, to get in. Oh, no. I was down there, Johnny, on the spot. And all of a sudden, there were crash meetings in Washington with President Roosevelt. And we didn't have the Secretary of Defense and had a Department of War. You didn't have the court-martial manual you've got today. That's the niceties you didn't have. You had uh, articles of war. You know, I, I should walk my post in a military manner. If you caught sleeping, you'd be shot in the firing squad. Uh, we had more bleeding hearts come in. That's when bleeding hearts started to come in the system, I think. Bleeding hearts. Bleeding hearts me are people who uh, have watered down our fighting capability. You know, you hear people today talk about Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and then Desert Storm. That was the war. So, uh, anyhow, getting back to that, I thought it was a great adventure, and it was. Was it okay with your parents? Were they behind you? No, they were worried, and I was too stupid. That's where it was stupid. I didn't realize what they were going through. I did subsequently, but mom and dad were, uh, they were behind me anything I wanted to do. Uh, Buechler, we talked about the German name, were they, was there, had they been born in this country, your parents? Both my parents were, but my grandparents were born in England, in uh, Germany. Mm -hmm. Was there any problem, did they have family, uh, did you still have family in Germany? Was there any connections? I've still got a lot of friends in Germany. I go there quite frequently. But at that time, was it? Well, I can give you an insight into that. When I came home from flying school, I graduated November 10th, 1942. And I was a brand new second lieutenant. I was commissioned. 
and they had a brand new pair of wings. And uh, I had always loved my uh, my grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side had passed away already. But on my mother's side, her maiden name was Newman. Uh, my uh, grandpa Newman was a oh, tough, big man. And he spoke guttural German because in that, those days they spoke the language because they grew up. And that's where I learned my German, more I think from there than I did from my dad. But I came home from flying school and uh, first thing I wanted to do is uh, see my grandmother and grandfather. Well, my grandfather had a big mustache, you know, like that was popular in those days, I guess. And went by there, and as was the habit, the custom, oh, we were always taught to, we, we would greet and kiss our grandfather and grandmother. I really loved them. I did. They were the greatest. They had more influence on me than anything. He taught me discipline. She taught me a lot of things. Uh, and I guess that's why I did so well in the military. Anyhow, I, I came in and I kissed my grandma and uh, grandpa was sitting in a chair. I never will forget this. And I, I just reached down and I put my arm around him. I gave him a hug and a kiss. And he said, I remember these words. He says, God damn it, Bob, you look good in your uniform, you know. <laughs> and uh, then he said, he bannered a little bit, and he said, uh, where are you going to fight? His English was somewhat broken, because he was guttural, mm -hmm. German. Where are you going to fight? I said, I don't know, Grandpa. I said, I've still got to go for advanced gunnery and navigation and a myriad of things you have to do to hone your skills. You know? And he said, he says, you're probably fighting Europe. I said, it's a good life we look at. Well, that's where we're sending all of our B-17s, B-24, B-26s. I named a whole litany of them. And he says, uh, good. He says, God, man, now you go shoot your cousins. It's either that, that being, because I've still got a lot of relations with them. When I go to Germany, I've got three cousins who were Luftwaffe pilots under Hitler. And <coughs> I've met people. Uh, you know they have indelible, indelible allegiance. Uh, in other words, indelible citizenship. England had it, Germany had it, Italy had it. So we had many an American was over there in peacetime. I wonder what, uh, there was fighting, but we weren't involved. But as soon as this country went to war, they were conscripted into that army. Was there any, uh, were you aware of any uh, disfavor shown people of German heritage over here like they were the <coughs> Japanese? Quite the contrary. German people were looked upon as being about the brightest people. No, I mean when this war started. No. Now I understand there was some of that <coughs> as the war progressed and casually followed. Augie Bush uh, had a bullet all here. Later on, subsequently, he became a colonel. 
But uh, at first, I think the FBI raided the uh, mm. Bevo Mill. Mm -hmm. That was owned by Augie Bush. And they used to have one meetings down at basement. I've always heard that term. I'm not sure exactly what it meant. Bund. Bund, the Bunders. Well, today, the Central Bank of Germany is called the Bundesbank. Mm -hmm. It's central. Is that like German? Or yeah. Just German? And the Bund was, oh, uh, it was a political organization mm -hmm. uh, formulated under Hitler. So, so there was a little bit, not, not, uh, not anything to... Yeah. And I think the Nazi rise from about 19 early 1930s on was mainly by these cells called boons, you know. And uh, the reason their intelligence gathering was so great, mm -hmm. one of our biggest problems in the war was get the GIs to keep their damn mouths shut because they're all talking, I'm going to ship out. Get the what? Uh, Who to keep their mouths shut? To keep, to get them to keep their mouths shut oh. because there was always somebody who was, yeah, oh, I, I who was going to take that information, disseminate it, where to get back, and that's where submarines were getting lines on our ships and mm -hmm. movements of troops and everything else. Well, tell me about you. When you went off to get further training after you uh, got out of yeah. the original training, I had to go down to uh, Texas, Houston, and uh, then we had gunnery familiarization with machine gun, day and night gunnery, uh, flying old P-40s. That's uh, a pursuit plane? Yeah. So and that's just where you are in the plane, with one other person? No, you're by yourself. You're by yourself, no. okay. So you, so you just like an F-15 today, or an F-100. I'll show you some of them later on. And uh, I thought it was only for about a month. <coughs> And then we had to come back to Kansas City for two months, three months. See, November, and there in December, January, and February. Uh, and we flew with TWA. It was contracted out. TWA then taught us navigation and pilotage and dead reckoning. Because we're going to fly these damn airplanes all over the world. Don't we're going to go. And then wind shifts. And you had to learn something about meteorology. We had basic meteorology in flying school. Did you like what you were doing? Oh, I loved it. It was most interesting. <coughs> and so, uh, I guess that covers that. Bob, when did you begin to feel that you were um, good at it? Like oh, the uh, first day I flowed, I sold. I knew I was good. You know, where the guys were taking. The maximum was five, but you had to go up five times after your first try, including your first try. Mm -hmm. And you didn't sew, you were washed out. They didn't have time to waste it. But I sold on my third time up. The, uh, Felt good? Oh, yeah, it was great. I, I didn't see a big hulk of a man, he was a nice guy, up in the front cockpit. His 200 pounds wasn't up there. The airplane bounced around, it was lighter. Heavier and climb faster. What what was it like to be away? I mean, you 
Can you tell me you went to Beaumont, you came out of high school, you drove a truck, you worked with Curtis Wright. You met, what, what, this was a little bit different for you, wasn't it? You met a lot of different people. Oh, yeah. <coughs> How was that? I, you see, again, I was the only one. People in our economic, which, our economic strata, which was most of the people. What'd your dad do? My dad was a machinist. And usually like father, like son. Uh, was your mother at home? Mother was home, yeah. She always away had uh, seven kids. Where did you fit in? I was number two. Oldest. Second yeah. oldest. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So you, like other people in your economic bracket, you know? Yeah, that's true. Oh, uh, I can recall once sitting in the cockpit of a B-25 with uh, Lord Mountbatten, and we were pretty good friendly then. And <clears throat> I remember him saying to me, he said, Bob, you know, he said, uh, I like your president. And of course, you're president to us as a military man, it's your commander in chief, you know. You never tolerate anything that's derogatory. You knock the hell out of anybody saying anything derogatory about he said, uh, <clears throat> well, we met two cracks about, we were still part of England. And even though we thought we were free with the revolution, you know, we were still part of England. <laughs> and uh, he thought, as I do today, he was a brilliant man, that the president, he said, but your president, I remember him saying, President Roosevelt is not like uh, our prime minister. Churchill. And uh, <coughs> of course he and Churchill were very close. But before I met him, he had been Admiral of the British fleet at the evacuation of Dunkirk. I don't know if you remember that. I do. He was in charge of that. Mountbatten. Hmm? You mean Mountbatten? Yeah. Because he was Admiral of the British fleet and they were trying to save some 350,000 men and that uh, got their proverbial posture in a jam when, when Hitler's forced to start moving and pushed them up at Dunkirk and they had to get them across the channel into England. They used every kind of boat imaginable. And Luftwaffe had a ball shooting the hell out of them. They killed the thousands and thousands of them. For the sake of this interview, explain who Lord Mountbatten was at that time that you were he was then Allied Supreme Allied Commander of Asia. Now we're going to drop Lord <coughs> Mountbatten right there in the cockpit of your plane, and we're going to go back. We're going to pick him up again when okay. we get to. Earth. I wanted to tell that, carry that thought on you had before about how did it feel. Yes. He asked me at the end of that conversation. Uh -huh. uh, he presumed because I was a lieutenant and we had the same hierarchy as they do in the British Army. Uh -huh. Nobility and all that stuff. Nobility? Yeah. Well, European armies were always famous. The German army was famous for it. You had to be a nobleman to be a fighter pilot. Uh, he said, uh, he assumed I was well-educated, which I wasn't formally educated. I only had a high school diploma. And it was, that wasn't very good either because I got booted out a couple he said, 
that uh, after we talked about Roosevelt, uh, he said to me that uh, he presumed I had been to foreign places, and I had a pretty good knowledge of geography. But I had to tell him, uh, sir, as of a year, a year and a half ago, the furthest I'd ever been home from home in my life was 100 miles to go on a fishing trip with a family up the Gascony River. He couldn't believe that. The British have been doing this for centuries. We hadn't. <clears throat> We're a neophyte nation. We still are. So how did it feel to you to be away from home, involved with all these different kinds of young men? Felt great. I liked it. Uh, some of the conditions were tough, but I think people were much tougher than they are today. Never heard of that. air conditioning. And <clears throat> temperature at night when you went to bed in Burma and in Upper Assam, India, and over in China, you had poisonous snakes galore, cobras, pit vipers. Rights. You had <coughs> wild animals, you had uh, nuisances of flies and bugs, which is typical of jungles. And you went to bed, you had, uh, they issued what was called a, a bomb then, a spray bomb, to get rid of mosquitoes because malaria was very prevalent. I had a problem with malaria. And so <coughs> you would, uh, Take your mosquito netting because scorpions might get up in your bed then. The idea was that right before you went and used it, you'd take, move out the uh, netting and stack it up above and take everything and shake it out. Every once in a while you shake out a snake. And then after you knew it was clear, then tuck all this stuff back in and leave a little place for you to crawl in. And then in the process of doing that, you're going to have a few mosquitoes staying there. So you take that bomb and kill them. See? Then you climb into bed with the bomb and pull the netting in underneath. And you can sleep that night without getting bitten. Because if you got bitten, it was almost certainty, even though you took Adabrin every day, the flight surgeon would come around giving all the people the Adabrin tablet. It still wouldn't ward off a malaria attack, you know. Adabrin was, hmm? what was Adabrin? Adabrin's, uh, at that time, was the best medicine they had to fend off uh, uh, the fever. I believe the Germans invented that. I think they did. Um, all right, how did you get to uh, the Chinese, Burma, India, theater of war? You mean transport? Mm-hmm. Is that what? I, I went over on a... A Pan Am flying no, I boat. I mean, how, how did you progress to that? Had you been anywhere else yet, or did you just, that was your first well, assignment? Well, my first time out of the States. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd been, now I'd done, once I came in the service, I, the first uh, night and day, the day and night train ride down on San Antonio. Mm -hmm. That was the furthest I'd ever been from St. Louis, and here I'm 20 years old. Going both getting close to 21. I was 21 when I graduated.
I want to get you over there unless there's... Spanish-American War in 1898, World War I, when we went involved, were involved in 1917, and World War II, and the Korean War. And he found the healthiest group of people who ever came in, because he's going to have a, a, a latch on it, know what, what's the general state of the health. The healthiest group of people. And he had a reason for it. was in World War II in the whole history of our country. They had better eyes, better ears, better feet. What do you think of, I think I believe I heard uh, Colin Powell talking about uh, they're letting people out of the military now. And a lot well, of young people want to stay. They love it and they want to make it their career and they can't. They can't do it. Yeah, they're giving them incentives financially. And um, Colin Powell got up and he, he made, uh, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but the gist was that um, this is the best group of young men that has ever been in the military. Well, he's an idiot. I don't know if he meant well educated or which is, but I. Health wise, I don't think that's true. Because a friend of mine told me, I said, what, what's the reason for that? He said, we had a depression in 29, because it ran almost all the way up to the blue entry to the war. And he said, you know, youngsters, the bulk of the people, not the elite that had all the money. He said, you walk to school, whether it was below zero, or it was red hot, you didn't have air conditioning. Your mother fed you bean soup and hard bread. This makes for good people. Tougher. Yeah, tougher people. That's what you got in China, in Russia today. You, you got some hardy people in Russia. I've been many times to Russia. Good point. Uh, all right, so you, uh, you felt good about what you were doing, and they shipped you, they assigned you to uh, this theater for were you, how'd you feel about that? With China? Uh-huh. And what was the date? Well, let's see. The year, the month and the year. We went for a while through Anisup Patrol at Homestead Air Force Base down that's uh, south of Miami. Uh, I did that for about four or five weeks. Then I got my orders. And at midnight, we went downtown Miami, got on board a it's a seaplane. It was called a clipper. The China clipper, I don't know if you remember that. Big flying boat with the engines on the wings. 
And we flew from there, and the next morning, I think we left around 11 o'clock at night. The next morning, about 9 o'clock, we landed at the mouth of the Amazon River. That's Palam, Brazil. And we had breakfast on a barge, and they gassed the airplane. And we took off and flew to Ascension Island, which is known like Portugal. We still got a base in Ascension. I go in there sometimes. And from uh, Ascension, we stayed there only a short time. We went over to what then was the African Gold Coast. I think that's Liberia today. All those names have changed so yeah. much yeah. in Africa. Uh, and there, we left the flying boat at Accra, Accra, Africa, which was the African Gold Coast. And uh, we had military airlift then. We flew a booty bird, C-47, across Africa uh, to Aden, the Red Sea. Then from there, up the coastline uh, to uh, coastline of Saudi Arabia, seven Emirates, uh, guitar, what is now the seven Emirates in guitar. And then across uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, but it wasn't Pakistan, and that was India. See, all this, Lord Mountbatten was the one who architected all this thing. When it created Bangladesh, that all came subsequent to World War II. The political changes were taking place very rapidly. And then from there into Karachi, India, which is Karachi, Pakistan today, and then we had to stay there an extra week. So rather than staying one night, they said we had to stay an extra week because before we left here, we got about 50 shots. I went to Northern Door, sore. I got more needles stuck in me. You had cholera, and you had smallpox, and you had uh, uh, what's the typhoid. Anyhow, the uh, <coughs> cholera shots were laboratory produced, and they were ineffective over there. Oh. So I remember the doc, he uh, came down operation, we were waiting to get back on the airplane to go to the other, the eastern side of India and get an upper sandwich. We'd get another airplane to go across the Himalayas into China. You see, you couldn't go the other way because that was all blocked with the Axis power. You had to go around the back part of the world. And I remember uh, this doc came in there and he's a whole bunch of pots. We were smoking a cigarette. He says, uh, you guys are going to have to stay here for two weeks. He said, we're getting all flight crews that come through here. He said, uh, you're going to have to take three more shots. And I remember saying, what the hell kind, doc? I said, we took all the shots back in the state. I don't want to get sore arms again. And he said, you're going to have to retake your uh, cholera shots because they're ineffective. We had too many GIs die from cholera. Cholera is prevalent in these places. I suppose for hygiene and other reasons, they, uh, these are old civilizations, you know, and they're immune to these bugs, but American is not. So. Uh, I remember being a smart aleck. I said, well, Doc, why is it going to take a whole week? We want to get over and start fighting. 
it wasn't going to take a whole week just to get three shots. He said, well, they're going to be spaced out two days. And he said, you're going to be spaced out. I remember him saying that at least four or five days with a temperature of 104 degrees because we're going to give you the uncultured germs, the real thing. You're going to get inoculated with cholera. And he said, believe me, after this inoculation, you'll never get cholera the rest of your life because you build up uh, immunity, uh, antibiotics. And so that happened. And we did. We ran it tremendous. We stayed in the Maharaja's uh, Kutzbahar's palace, and we ran up a temperature of about 104 degrees for about three days, and then subsided, went down. Did you find when you were traveling, well, maybe this question will come later, so we'll think of it, we'll think about it later. Um, Americans, you stayed in this one's palace, uh, they pretty, did they pretty well back away and give the American whatever they needed at this time? I mean, you were not when you say they, who do you mean? The, the country that you were in, or the... Oh, you mean the host nation? Yes, the host nation, thank you. Uh, most all the support we got, in-house support, in the way of uh, all accoutrements, uh, food, and things of that nature, some clothing, made to our specifications, was from the British. But the British dominated India at that time. They go back to Rudolf Kipling's days, you know, Gunga Dean, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what, what I, I, my original question was, um, what date, approximately, did you go over here? Are we still in 1942? Oh, I left in May, I think it was May the 14th. Yeah, it was, but I came back in the country on October the 14th, uh, next after that year. So I left May the 14th. It might have been the 17th. But just, just a feeling. I just, I just want to get a, in February you were, uh, you enlisted, and are you were. Uh, yeah, February and then, and enlisted. Then, and are we still? I want you, I want you to put me a, a date. Okay, I ran sometime uh, when you got to India. The sequence there. February enlisted. Went on a train to San Antonio, pre-flight, then a series of flying schools until November of that year, November the 9th and 10th. We graduated. Then we're brand new second lieutenants and pilots. Then uh, I came home on leave for about six days. Went back to Texas for gunnery. That was only a few weeks. Came back up here and stayed in Kansas City for three months, learning mainly weather, world weather. Uh, you remember we were rather infants in the weather business and flying in ice and all these thunderstorms, that's it's quite a thing, particularly over the mountains. And we learned a lot about navigation. You're going to navigate long distances over water when no man had ever done it before with rather primitive instruments, nothing like you have today, TACAN and, and ADF. Well, I won't go into that. So, and then to kill time, then for staging, they sent us afterwards through it to Kansas City. Got to come home for about five days. And then we went on down to uh, Florida, our group, Homestead Air Force Base, which is just south of Miami. It was a new base, and we flew anti-sub patrol. 
Well, we had death bombs, but we'd never seen. Although the German subs were quite active down there, sinking our tankers and our Liberty ships. They sank a hell of a lot of shipping. And by the way, as an offshoot, I, I wonder why our people spook so much every time there's an oil slick caused, you know, the ecologists. There was so much oil dumped in the oceans then because they were being uh, exploded with, with torpedoes every day. You run a war on oil. But anyhow, the world on oil. Yeah. And so I stayed there, I think, from about the end of February, March, April, and about the 14th, 15th of May. Got on a plan boat, went to Africa, across Africa, into Aden, and, and where I got to India. And they were 1943. And that was 43, yeah. So we're gone now uh, in May, February, May, February, March, April. About 14 months now I'm going into combat. It's a long time for training. Well, you don't train a pilot like no. you do uh, an infantryman. And you you invest quite a bit of money. Today, when we train a pilot, it costs somewhere around one and a half to two million dollars to train a pilot. Okay, so what kind of planes were you flying? Well, when I got over there, you went, you weren't a specialist in any kind of it. You could be bombers, fighters, or transport. The need was for, we were more tra uh, fighter pilots than anything else, but the need was for transport pilots because the back end of China where the Japs were pushing pretty heavy, uh, they had all the coastal area of China, down to Malaysia and around to Rangoon up in Burma. And so <clears throat> it was necessary from a logistics standpoint, to fly everything across the hump until the road was built into China. Because the Burma road, which did go into China, the nation road, was cut off by the Japs. We didn't have enough forces over to take it. This is 1943. And so I, I guess for about six months, I flew the hump. What, what was the hump? The hump is... Uh, Going from Upper Sam, places like Upper Siam, Siam, Upper Assam, A S S A M, okay, which is now today Bangladesh, part of Bangladesh, up there where all the flooding takes place, it's at the foothills of the Himalaya mountains, and you have the Irrawaddy River, and the Brahmaputra, and if you go further west, that's where you hit the Ganges, but these are big rivers. And they flood. And when they flood, they kill sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. You've got to remember, India, uh, population-wise, is the second largest country in the world. They're not far behind China. Those two countries comprise half the population of the world. Both near, well, China now is over a billion people. Okay, so if you... You don't have a piece of paper in there. Yeah. Maybe you get the idea. If this is India, and 
Down here, if you got Singapore and you come up, this is the Indian Ocean. Uh, down here is Bombay, and here's Calcutta. Up here is uh, Karachi. And up in here is uh, Delhi, and New Delhi. And as you go up in here, up in this area, this is Assam, which today is Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Now, not too far from here is here's Nepal. You have you heard of Nepal? Yeah. And <clears throat> and over here, up in this area, where the Gurkhas come, a famous soldier. You up in this area here, and, you, and this is Burma. And this is China, which is a rather big country, but it's a big plateau, very high. We would fly from bases, like I flew out of Dinjan, Dinjan, Shabba, C-H-A-B-U-A, uh, Lido. These are some of the bases in Upper Assam. We would fly from there into China. We go into Kunming, Yunnan Yi, uh, Chongqing, you see what I mean? Yes. But these cities, they're massive today. They're what? Or they're massive, they're big. Big. They're all dirt roads and dirt streets. Uh, they're all on the western side of China. Over here at Fault of China, when you get over to what's today Beijing, or you get the Yangtze River and all those places, uh, not Singapore, but uh, Hong Kong, which China's going to take back in a few years, mm -hmm. uh, the Japs had all that. So there was no way, we had no bases over there. We did, our island hap, uh, hopping hadn't started yet in the Pacific. This all comes in 44 and 45, and it takes time. The Guadalcanal had been taken but that's in the early part of 43, but that's sort of down closer to Australia. It's not a help. Yeah. You needed places like Formosa and uh, Wake Island mm -hmm. and Guam and the Philippines. Yeah. Those are the places that put you in. Remember, airplanes didn't travel the but speeds and distances distance. they did today. You had fuel problems. Wait, so where is the, this is the hump? Where's the hump? Yeah. Now in here are the Himalayas. In between the bases. And you do know, uh, I used to fly around uh, uh, Mount Katzenjunga, 29,000 feet high. Well, the biggest mountain. There's a big argument about number one, number two mountains. The uh, surveyors used to think that uh, uh, Everest was the largest mountain in the world. Highest. Yeah, highest. Uh, at 39,000, uh, about 30,000 feet high. Mm -hmm. It's high. And you remember, nobody had ever climbed it until subsequent to World War II. Hillary yeah. from Britain. But we had to fly that. Now this whole range of mountains that goes from north to south, well, uh, more 
northwest to southeast. Uh, it's all the mountains. Mountains gather snow, and they have great rivers running down it, very fast because the mountains are so high. And if you were shot down or went down there, you usually took two or three months to walk out. <coughs> you didn't do it fast. Now the distance would leave these places like Where's the hump? Okay, the hump is a series of mountains. Right there. Okay. Right in here. The Himalayas. In the Himalayas. Okay. The hump is synonymous with Himalayas. Mm -hmm. okay. That's an acronym, uh, a nickname that was given to the Himalayas, which we flew every day. Oh, we only flew about 400 miles. If you fly from here to Kunming, and Kunming, by the way, if you look down here, is only 200 miles from uh, the uh, Hanoi. Bob, what were, what were you flying? What was the At purpose? that time it was C-46s and C-47s. And you were taking, what were you transporting? Nothing ammunition, bullets, gasoline, mortars, howitzers, artillery field pieces, jeeps. Uh, we couldn't haul tanks by air. Airplanes weren't capable of that, doing what c 5 a And who was fighting over here? The Chinese? Also the That's, Chinese. So you were uh, taking, you were transporting these uh, ammunition to the Chinese. Yeah, the Chinese under Chiang uh, Kai-shek. I don't know if you remember. Mm -hmm. Yes, you keep asking me. I'm, I'm not. You're, well, you're making me feel good, but I really do remember that. Okay. Chiang <laughs> Kai-shek. Keep asking. Was a warlord. Yes. From the, actually, he really came from Yunnan. Now this is Yunnan, Y-U-N-A-N. That's where the uh, panda comes from. From the what? Panda. There. Oh, the panda. Uh -huh. Okay. They're down in southwest China, and mm -hmm. this, all these cities right here. We couldn't go further into China. The Japs had the whole damn thing, <clears throat> and so to keep fight, keep them fighting, <clears throat> their biggest thing they needed logistically was gasoline. So your back end of the airplane would be loaded <coughs> about 50, 50 gallon drums of high octane gasoline. Now the gasoline, of course, is necessary to fly the fighters and the bombers that were working there to kill Japanese. Let's face it, be honest, we were in the killing business. But you got to have war materials if you want to do any mass slaughtering. And of course, if you're uh, that your name of the game is to kill the enemy before he kills you. When did you, uh, how did you happen to, what changed that made you end up in a cockpit with Lord Mountbatten? Well, <coughs> after I did that for a while, and they started to get more from the pipeline and training over here, more pilots. You've got to remember, priorities, the biggest word is priorities. We're fighting a war in Europe, and we're fighting one in the Pacific. And we started from scratch, as I told you at the outset. We had no war machinery. The plants had to build the airplane. They had to build the ships. We had no Navy. Most of the Navy we did have, the Japs killed it at Pearl Harbor. I don't think we had one battleship left, and we had about two or three carriers. They sunk those too. But by that time, new ones were being built in California, 
they're particularly up in the state of Washington, Newport News, and down in Galveston, up in Chicago. Chicago was a big shipbuilding area. They were bringing ships down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. How do you feel about um, the ships that you flew? Uh, being someone who had worked at Curtis Wright and knew how they were made, did you feel like, did you feel pretty safe? Were you? Well, you never, you adopt a philosophy when you fly. Back then you did. You're rather fatalistic. <coughs> you have a, you've acquired a lot of knowledge in airmanship, but you believe a great deal in luck. Now, there were some aircraft that were better than others. You can look at, uh, at fighters, uh, bombers, transport, recon, reconnaissance to take pictures, what they call BDA. Uh, that's an acronym for bomb damage assessment. And after you kill bomb somebody, damage what? assessment. assessment. <coughs> we bombed the city. This is a big thing in Germany. It's the 8th Air Force. As you bomb, you sent a thousand airplanes, and three thousand over, and they dropped tons and tons of bombs. Maybe killed uh, fifty thousand people. But you want to know how well did we do? So as soon as the bombers get back to the base, these fast airplanes with cameras are going and say, "Come back, is you got your target? You can wipe that one off. They, it'll take them another three months to rebuild it." Did they ever have cameras? I thought they had cameras on the airplanes that with the bombs. Oh no, <coughs> fighters had, a fighter chasing another fighter had a, a wing camera that would show his kill. You know, you could see pieces flying off the airplane and the bullets went into them. But uh, this kind of photography brought back big prints, not a, a, a running strip, mm -hmm. but actual bomb damage assessment. You could see where the 500-pounders and 1,000-pounders had hit. Like they went up to the Pulaski oil rigs and that to deny Germany oil, you know, down plastic. Or the ball bearing works, because you can't run a war. You can't have ball bearings for your tanks and your trucks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it goes on and on, on and on, ad finitum, ad nauseum. It's just never ending. Okay. So. Okay. So if you, if you fly an airplane, all airplanes, basically the characteristics are the same. They go up, they come down, mm -hmm. and you have a three-dimension movement, which is different two-dimension in an automobile, because you go up and down. An automobile, if your engine quits, you're not going to die unless you're on a superhighway, maybe. But an airplane, when the engine quits, you're going down. Because uh, mother gravity takes over. And so you have to operate in the spectrum called the air. Now, the air, to me, I don't look at it as lay, air, uh, lay people do. The air is like the sea, to me, only it's a lighter component. You float it. If anything is too heavy on the sea, it'll sink. Anything that's too heavy and doesn't move fast enough through the air is going to 
fall down on the ground. So it's a different media. Whether you're in the air and water. Okay. The fighters, you're familiar with many of the fighters with the P-51, the uh, 47, which was called the Thunderbolt. This was the Mustang. Uh, the P-40, P-39, uh, P-38, which was a twin boom. My question was, uh, did you feel that they were well-made and safe? And you said that you... Oh, yeah. I think they, they weren't as good as the German aircraft. They weren't as well We didn't have designed. a good They weren't as well designed or they weren't as well made? Both. We were way behind the engineering of the Germans. They smarter people, that's all. They made better airplanes, they made better musicians, they made a better pistol, they made a better rifle, they made everything was better. Yeah, how, how come they won? Sheer mass. Yeah. Not quality. Quantity. Quantity. I remember talking to somebody who uh, was in England when right for D-Day, and he said, never, but can you imagine the amount of equipment that was shipped to England to come for All D-Day? those convoys for almost four years were dumping that stuff over. He said it was, it was beyond imagination. And when D-Day started, the biggest problem was traffic control, even. Okay. Um, so you you did all this transporting of goods, and how how did when did when did you get another assignment? How did you get in the cockpit with with Malpatten? I want you to answer. I want you to answer that now. All right. <laughs> and straight to the point. I came back. I went from flying a hump to troop carrier, okay. where we supported uh, Merrill's Marauders. Did you ever hear of him? I, I did. I did. Okay. But I and, I and Vinegar Joe Stillwell. Yes. Okay. I knew him. And Merrill's uh, Marauders were, tell me where they were fighting. Just in Burma. In Burma, okay. And still where? And we supplied Burma. them okay. by air. There was no way, no roads. They were going through the jungle. Mm-hmm. And I came back from a troop care mission one day. You see, this is right next to Burma. You just go over here and down here. Mm-hmm. Come down far enough, you're a good girl, brand good. Okay. Anyhow, I came back from a mission. And with the Japanese in Rangoon at that time? Yeah, they had inundated the whole area, right. occupied it. And is that where Merrill's, Merrill, Merrill's Marauders were? They were operating behind the lines. They were killing as many Japanese as they could. And uh, uh, they were a motley crew. They were very effective soldiers. They were like Wingate's people. Now, Wingate was another force of British that were down in Burma, along with, that, with Merrill's Marauders. Or in Wingate. Yeah. But he was British and Maryland right. was American. And then at the same time this is going on, so we can get stuff into China to, to uh, fight the Japs logistically. By truck, you can haul much more by truck, or you can haul much more by railroad if you had them, but you're not going to take them over to Himalayas. We built the Lido Road. This started the Lido. I haven't had that mentioned here. From where we operated, the road that came up from Burma and went into Kunming, China, was cut off by the Japs. We couldn't use it. We'd have enough forces. And so the Lido Road was built in through the Himalayas to do that. And once it was completed, oh, we could push a lot of